Well, hello and welcome to episode number 344 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's fully packed show, uh, we learn that despite what's going on, there is still a pilot shortage. There's good news for holidaymakers in Bristol as Jet2 announced their opening routes and there's breaking news about an incident involving an Antonov 12. In the military, the German parliament approves a whopping 5.4 billion euros for 38 typhoons and the new home for the Flying Legends is announced. It's the first part of our interview uh, session with Faraday's Neil Cluffley and in the plain truth this week we learn all about the amount of time pilots and crew can work whilst on duty. So joining me as always this week in the PTUK Master Suite studio, it is the legend of course that is Matt Smith. You make me sound. You make me sound about five hundred years old. <laughs> Thanks for that. To be fair, you what you you do work incredibly hard because you do the Saturday nights as well for uh, for me. So uh, yeah, and many now. You are. I noticed. Yeah, I, I, noticed I know. I'm, I'm pulling a double shift this weekend. You are. <laughs> you are. Shameless plugs to come later on the show. So how are you, Matt? Anyway, I, well, you know me, living life's eternal dream every single day. I, I feel lost. I haven't seen you at all this week on the roads. I know they keep me over. A, they keep me over a sort of hobarty way at the moment. Over in Lodden, mm. at the moment. so yes, absolutely mm. yes. Although I did mm. drive past your house on Wednesday afternoon. Oh, did you beep it? Well, Poppy? yes, but you were at work, so uh, I mean, okay. Poppy Cat gave me a wave out of the window. Obviously, she no doubt she did. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Well, she did the usual thing of nothing me, but anyway. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> And also joining us this week, uh, again, it's the awesome man that is everything to do with uh, everything yellow and Focus ST-ish. Oh, no. It's, of course, oh, no, don't mention the Neville ST. Bounds. No, no, don't mention it. Don't mention yes, it. well, it, it started off a very good day today, it being Friday the 13th. Uh, what, what could possibly uh, go wrong? Well, oh. uh, uh, as you can see, uh, there was a slight incident on the front of my car because it got hit by a lorry tyre, um, which is a bit of a nuisance. I only went out to do a software update on the car, would you believe? And if I'd just not gone out, it, it wouldn't have happened. So, uh, but there we go. There it's we one go. of those things. A little, little insurance job there, I think. <laughs> do you think? Ow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I bet you know if they'll do what they always do and like what, drag the heels, drag the heels. <laughs> oh yes, Mr. Barnes, we'll have that sorted for you next millennium. Yes. Yeah. So, no, it's been a good week today. Uh, uh, sorry, this week at work, but very hectic again. Uh, not much in the way of traveling course at the moment but uh, hopefully that'll uh, resolve itself uh, later in the year or start of next year so looking forward to that uh, we, uh, sorry to sort of interrupt slightly never we're getting slightly you're slightly muffled for some reason oh really oh okay that's very odd um, ah, there, there it is it's come back whatever it was it's gone it's someone mucking about uh, with me my new fiber to the home connection <laughs> right okay but good life isn't getting through for some reason <laughs> Yeah, as I say, this, I don't know what it's, it's one of those, isn't it? Like we've been happily chatting for like three quarters of an hour, and then the second we go live, something, some, some gremlin always creeps yes. in, doesn't it? Never mind, yeah. all part of the fun. Anyway, all good though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice to see you on as always, Nev. Great to have you on. And he's on again this week. He's back. We're pleased to say that he's about not about ninety five percent back to full uh, operating capacity, and is of course the fantastic <laughs> operating pilot capacity. That What's is. That? supposed to mean <laughs> it is of course the absolutely fantastic armando or not or not oh i'm just kidding i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> 
Someone was on mute. <laughs> I wasn't on mute. I was hoping that Matt would see that the little mute button was off and I, he couldn't hear me. Just to, just to make sure he's got his heart attacks out of the yeah, way. Yeah, the first thing yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're, we're, we're currently around 130 beats a minute. Oh, That's my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. That's just not going to come out uh, quite the same on the audio podcast, but hey, it was fun anyways. Um, so yeah, how, I love Dead Air. That's my favorite things, thing on the podcast. How are things, Armando? How are things? Good. As uh, you guys were saying before the show, I was a little bit poorly last week and the last <laughs> couple of weeks. Um, so I really didn't do a lot other than just sitting around the house. But I did get back in the air, flew skydivers on Sunday <gasps> or uh, yeah, last Sunday. And then uh, I'll be doing the same this weekend and got a couple other little flights uh, throughout the week. Took my brother-in-law flying, um, which was kind of fun. A little old 150. It's always fun to get into a 150 and just throw it around the sky. Um, but other than that, do you know, it's, this, uh, it's very difficult to sort of. He's so blase about this whole flying thing, isn't he? Honestly, it's just like just took a little three, you know, one fifty, threw it around the sky for a bit, you know. You know, like, you know, we need, I mean, you know, we need to speak to staff. Yeah, no, it's exhausting. It's like, I mean, how does one be that cool? I mean, it's like you and Barack Obama, frankly. Oh. It's just like, <laughs> oh. I, I don't know that any Cessna 150 pilots ever qualified that like solidly in the cool category. I mean, they think they are, but um, I suppose it's still cool. Nice. But it, it's not something that I would go fling around at the bar and be like, hey, you've heard of the C-130, right? Pretty big airplane. I fly a C-150. <laughs> well, quite. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sorry, I brought it up, Armando. I do apologise. Just, uh, just the whole the whole thoughts of the Cessna 150 come to mind when you're sitting in there along with an instructor and you, you're literally shoulder to shoulder and you're flying a plane like this because you hardly move. Yeah. Lovely. Anyway, you know, first world problems. Uh, yeah. <laughs> shall we move now, on? I'll, I'll send you up in one with Stuart. Our friend Stuart O'Neill, I'll send you up with uh, Stuart. Okay, he knows how to throw people around. I was the only. T- yeah. I, I went up with him once. It's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I could do it again. <laughs> he's he's um, he knows how to move the controls. Let's put it that oh, way. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that gonna... came out all wrong. I didn't mean it like that. I know. <laughs> move swiftly on with Shall our we? welcomes. Uh, we're going to say I've got a big a, I'm going to the same colour as my T-shirt now. Uh, <laughs> Say hello to everyone who has joined us in the live YouTube chat room this evening. We're going to say a big hello to Auntie Liz. Hello to you, Auntie Liz. Nick Codling. Uh, Airshow World was also in there as well. Airshow World uh, is Stu. He's one of our very good friends. He's also broadcasting on YouTube as well. Uh, Richard Adams. Uh, Alan White. Hello to you, Alan. Uh, we've got Tony S. Captain Cruise Masher is also there. We have got, just make sure I don't miss anyone, Alan Loveday. Hello to you, Alan. Uh, Jan Hubner. Hello to you, Jan. Hope you're well. Rakon Lane Street. Hello to you, Lane. Stephen H. Andrew van der Sarg. Ah, there we go. We were going to ask Andrew exactly we what were. he brought Absolutely. with his uh, plane reclaimers uh, voucher. Perhaps he can tell us all in the chat room. Uh, and we've got uh, Armando. Obviously, it's good to have oh, Armando in the chat room. Behave uh, yourselves. And John Jester, hello to you, John Jester. Hello to Myla. Uh, scrolling down, APG Show. I can say that the, the, the governor's just popped in. Behave yourselves, everyone. The governor's in. Yeah. <laughs> and don't forget, if you are listening to our glorious voices through our audio podcast, which you've downloaded, don't forget, if you want to join us in the uh, YouTube virtual world, live streaming on a Friday night, as we are now, hit the subscribe button and then hit the bell icon, which is right next to it, to be notified when we're live and recording, as we are now. And 
you can join us in the lovely chat room with all the family members in there. So uh, don't forget to do that. That'd be lovely. So uh, we've uh, got loads of stuff to get through on the show this week. And uh, we've got some great segments to play out as well. And uh, I think uh, we're going to go with some listener feedback, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I'll tell you what, I'll take the first one then, if I may, because um, it actually involves this beautiful photograph that's behind me on the green screen here. Uh, somebody please... Uh, it's I, I wanna, gorgeous. Oh, is, it, what is it? I want to say an A3... Two, no. No, 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 abort, abort. All that interference error. is coming through there. <laughs> That's right, sorry. Uh, anyway, there's an aeroplane uh, behind me. What is it? Somebody put me out of my misery. <laughs> I know it's a BA before somebody says. It's a dreamliner. It's a dreamliner. Is it a dreamliner? Is yeah, it right? Yeah. Okay, apparently it's a dreamliner that's behind me. Uh, but anyway, I'll, I'll read the email. So this came in from uh, Dan Seaman this week, and he says, Good evening, Armando, Carlos, Matt, and Nev. Just listening to episode 343. Thanks for all the brilliant interview with with pilot Ryan uh, as I've been following his YouTube channel for a while now. That was a really good interview actually last week, mm. wasn't it? Really enjoyed that. Um, Carlos, you've been obsessed with these videos for, for ages as well. They as are really Armando, good. Haven't you? Both you and Armando sort of watched them, I think, on repeat by the sound of it. And uh, anyway, enough waffling uh, along. I was introduced not just uh, to not just PT UK, but podcasting as a whole by Jonathan Warner beside the fence at RAF Fairford three or possibly four years ago now. Well, it's fair to say that I've been trucking up and down the roads of Britain. I've listened Ooh. to every episode and every back episode. Oh dear, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, poor, I'm poor so boy. sorry. <laughs> uh, which leaves me, uh, which leaves me a little surprised that you had no background display for episode three four three. So I've attached one of my own taken at LAX last year but it's probably best kept for an episode that Nev is present. Well, Nev is present, and uh, thank you, Dan. Thank you. It says, kind regards and stay safe, Dan Seaman. So thank you very much for that uh, uh, email and also for this fantastic picture that is on the green screen. Do you approve, Nev? Me. Oh, yes. Top job there. Very nice. Lovely. Absolutely. Good. Yeah. And, and, and um, do we know what the specific variant is? You say it's a Dreamliner. Do we know the numbers? Oh, oh I don't know. I'll pop the picture back up. Uh... Dash nine, yeah. Okay, Jan Hubner reckons the the dash nine. So uh, there we go. Uh, uh, that's that's good. So we go. So we, we we've had a great week for feedback, actually. And Nev, you've got the next one. Yeah, talking of Jan Huber, Hubner, uh, our good friend that listens to the show, uh, he sent in some feedback. He says, "Hello, gentlemen." Obviously, he's not referring to all of us. No. <laughs> uh, because I've put together a little segment about the closure of Berlin Tegel Airport on November the 8th, which was uh, last Sunday. It's available to you to use on the show, as I promised to Nev a couple of weeks ago. Well, thank you, I really appreciate that. He says, I'm awfully sorry I couldn't take uh, footage myself on board the final Air France flight, but the appropriate seats sold out in minutes. Uh, so instead, we've taken BA on a quick back-to-back -to, -back to Heathrow with my pal Mike from the weekend before, which was uh, brilliant. Uh, this airport has been a vital part of my life for the past decade, and so has BA from my childhood days. And it was more than just an occasion uh, that we chose this route. We've been looked after really well at the lounge and on the return flight, and the uh, cabin services manager even allowed my friend Mike to upgrade to club, which also meant our plastic glasses were never half empty. What a nice touch to a sad journey, he says. Greetings from Berlin, from Jan. Well, thank you very much indeed, Jan. That's very kind of you to write that. Let's have a look at uh, the content that you have sent us.
I've got to say, Jan, that is a fantastic piece of video and a massive thanks to you for putting that together for us. A big well well done round of applause for you. And yeah, Dan. brilliant. Um, it's a shame, actually. We were just saying there while the video is running, wondering what will happen to... Um, to the airport now it's closed and Jan has just said in the chat room that uh, apparently they're going to make the terminal into a university campus which is 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 good i suppose good use um the only bit that um sort of upsets me is the fact they're going to build houses on the tarmac and runways yeah. on the which is a shame is it, is it just me who got quite emotional with that atc recording of of the last flight and all that kind of thing i just found that mm. really moving actually yeah, i think i think if you're a pilot and you've been flying into that airport oh, yeah. as much matt that you, you you tend to it's like a second kind of home as such you know you get to yeah. this stage where you're so used to how things run at an airport uh, you know as a as a pilot mm. i think it is quite emotional when yeah i can imagine finally stop i yeah. can imagine anyway again uh, our personal thanks thank you so much for going mm. so much trouble there jan and if anybody else would like to uh, go to those extreme lengths we'd be only too happy to receive your content uh get in touch with the show podcast at plaintalkinguk.com that's our email address podcast at plaintalkinguk.com yeah well done jan keep up the good work <clears throat> absolutely yes okay uh, time to move on i think carlos Yes, we are going to move on then with the first uh, part of the show, then with the commercial news. Uh, so we're going to start the show then, as we do each week, with a rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if all the team's ready... Yeah, let's go. Let's go. So kicking off this week's first news story, and uh, it's always one of those things that we've talked about in the past on the show about uh, pilot shortages, but this one is on Flight Global, and uh, apparently the headline says, aviation will need 27,000 new pilots in 2021, despite the downturn in uh, obviously what's going on here. So despite an industry slump that has seen uh, mass pilot layoffs, the global civil aviation industry will still require an estimated 27,000 new pilots from the end of 2021, or 264,000 over the coming decade. That forecast comes from Canadian training and simulator provider CAE, which on the 9th of November released its latest prediction covering demand and availability of pilots through 2029. This year, the number of active pilots has declined year on year by around 87,000 to about 300,000, but will bump up to an estimated 374,000 by the end of 2021, says the CAE. Though still less than 2019 levels by the end of next year, age-based re uh, requirements and attrition will leave the industry short by 27,000 flight crew, says the study. Wow. That figure will balloon over 10 years to a requirement for more than 264,000 new pilots, CAE says. Despite the short-term decline in the number of active pilots due to the impact of the COVID-19, the civil aviation industry is expected to require more than 260,000 new pilots over the next decade, the CAE says. Fundamental factors influencing pilot demand prior to the COVID-19 outbreak remain unchanged. Age-based retirement and fleet growth were and are expected to remain the main drivers of pilot demand. Thousands of pilots have been furloughed in recent months. Many of them have pivoted to other professions that might not want to resume and might not want to resume their pilot careers. Very true, uh, says the report. 
The Asia-Pacific region will require the most new pilots, around 91,000 over 10 years, equating to about one-third of total demand. North America will need a combined 65,000 new pilots. Uh, Europe is going to need 42,000. And the Middle East are going to need 25,000. South and Central America at 16,000. And Africa, 4,000 pilots, CAE projects. So it's um, for reference, actually, uh, this is uh, in stark contrast to what BALPA, the pilots union, are saying. On the 5th of November, they issued a warning to potential student pilots. They, they said uh, pilots unions warning students uh, against starting pilot training courses for the foreseeable future. They said that the pilots union issued a warning to everyone who was thinking about embarking on a pilot training course. Uh, think again, this is what BALPA said. Uh, they said they've taken extraordinary steps to help avoid students paying upwards of £100,000 for training, only to find there are no jobs available at the end. I suppose, guys, if you think about it, all these pilots that have lost their jobs or been furloughed since this um, whole thing started, you know, there's a lot of these pilots who have lost their jobs or been furloughed are all young pilots um, mm. who have probably been flying for, you know, two or three or four years or whatever with the airlines you know i i can only assume that these pilots are all going to want to snap their jobs back up when things do go back to um to normal yeah talking to a couple of uh well-known captains as i was today um they're on sort of part-time working and they're saying actually we're quite happy to continue that part-time working um so maybe they don't all want to go back uh, on a full-time basis but depending on how the vaccine progresses and how the whole uh, airline business operates but it's inevitable that there will be a, a pilot shortage again i'm absolutely sure of it yeah it's a shame yeah it's, it's, oh. it, yeah, it's, a, it's a bit of a sort of like a well, not, not an odd one i suppose is it but it, as you say it's just like i, I mean oh, on the one hand, I understand why, you know, like Balper obviously had made, as you say, in stark contrast to the article that you read, the warning. Uh, you know, the warning at saying, mm. you know, and, and, and that is the thing. I mean, one of my friends, um, Nangle, who I've mentioned before, he, he was at the the 300th, you know, I mean, and he literally, he, I mean, he was taking out mortgages and all sorts of things just to get his flying sorted. And, and then it just all came to an end. Now, he's still got that horrendous mortgage that he's got to pay off and he still hasn't got, a you know, a flying job at the end of it i mean it's you know i don't know I, I i still think the biggest problem here with with all of this is you know is you know there's got to be a cheaper way of doing this you know i don't i don't, I, I do feel the airlines could do more um what do you think armando uh, so i think we've always said that the airlines can do a little bit more to do some of these ab initio programs it's caught on there in europe it never really has here in the u.s i know there's a couple uh, airlines that have tried it here and there but uh you know, I think it's just one of these things that is part of the industry. You know it going into it. If you've been around the industry for such a long time that there's going to be ups and downs. And uh, there's always people that are going to be willing to fly for the love of it, regardless of the uh, financial conditions, the compensation packages, things like that. And uh, people will – I've met so many pilots in my career that after 9-11 – you know, they were, they were finishing up their training. They had just gotten to an airline. How many airlines went, went bust after that? And they just went off and did other careers, but they, but they still had those ratings. So all, when we started picking back up 20, you know, 15, 16, 17, 
then they were able to get right into it. And it's, I think it's just something that we all know, even, even guys, you know, John Jester, one of my long, longest, longest friends, how many times has been uh, furloughed and here he is in the right seat of a 747 nowadays. And it, t- it just takes so much work. It's just one of these industries that takes so much uh, commitment through the ups and downs. And, and this is a down and, you know, for everything that, that comes down. But, I up, mean, so. we all, and it's not just one person that, that we all know. I mean, we all know several people who are, you know, you know, Airbus captains, as an example, who are currently, you know, doing, you know, deliveries for people. You know, it's you know in their in yeah. you know like working for a supermarket doing home deliveries because it you know it's 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 work that they can get their hands on. I mean, but presumably, I mean, those same people will want to go back to the industry. You know, so Absolutely. I, so it, I I guess it's a, a stark example for me personally. You think how how bad the pilot shortage is going to be? You know, if they're still putting out warnings even even after COVID, for once for want of a better word. Yeah, I think it's it's very important. And if anybody has a good aviation mentor, anybody that's trying to get into the industry now or start their flight training, any good mentor will say, always have a backup plan. It's almost like a professional athlete. Mm. You could get hurt at any moment, and that's yeah, the end of your, your sports yeah. career, right? Um, for pilots, I think it's very important to have a backup career. My brother was a captain at Midway Airlines after 9-11 when they closed their doors. And he managed a pizza hut for two years wow. until he could get back into a corporate flying job and then eventually got on with, uh, with Comair, you know, flying the CRJs. But like, it's, just, it's just part of it, unfortunately. Yeah, indeed. So, Matt, you've got some good news for people living in Bristol here in the UK. Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's on the UKAviation.news website. And the headline is, Jet 2's Bristol Airport Base will bring 450,000 holiday seats, which is great news. Uh, Jet 2 and Jet 2 Holidays have now officially announced that Bristol Airport will be the 10th base in the UK after it emerged the holiday company was loading flights from the regional airport onto its website last night. Operations at Bristol Airport will commence in April 2021 and operate throughout the summer season through to October with a total of 33 destinations. Four of the routes will be exclusive to Bristol Airport including uh, uh, Izmir, (laughs) Kalamata. You know John does this deliberately. Kalamata, uh, Lesvos and Costa del Almeria. Well, that, that could have been worse. Uh, the, the airline will base three Boeing 737-800 aircraft at the airport for the summer, operating 56 weekly flights, um, bringing uh, an additional 450,000 seat capacity to Bristol Airport. Steve Heapy, who is the CEO of Jet2.com and Jet2 Holidays, said, This is an incredibly exciting day for Jet2 as we expand our award-winning flights and holidays to Bristol Airport. We know how much demand there is because we've been listening to customers and independent travel agents in the region for some time we are delighted to be bringing them the news that they have been looking for uh, to uh, looking forward to meaning that they can finally enjoy real package holidays from Bristol Airport very exciting. It's good news yeah. I love this this is brilliant mm. this is what we like to hear good yeah, news absolutely yeah, indeed especially when it involves jobs yeah absolutely people, yeah so, uh, Nev, you've got the next one, and uh, this is all uh, A380 news. 
Uh, yes, it's um, well, it's the big problem of having uh, four engines again, isn't it? And uh, unfortunately, uh, BA are one of the people that have uh, been suffering from the problem of having too many seats and too many large aircraft. So this is on the simpleflying.com website, uh, and it says, uh, as the UK enters its second week of lockdown 2.0, the return of large-scale passenger demand is still far away on the horizon. As such, flag carriers... Carrier BA has taken the decision to move parts of its Airbus A380 fleet uh, for storage in Madrid. Uh, the first of the Super Jumbos uh, made the journey yesterday with the second just entering Spanish airspace uh, at the time of writing this article. Uh, this year has been the fall of the quad jets. The Boeing 747 and the Airbus A380 have exited fleets left, right and centre in the face of previously unim unimaginable low passenger demand. Cautious optimism at the end of the summer saw British Airways tentatively scheduling its A380s for its winter schedule. However, any hopes of a return to traffic volumes warranting the deployment of a super jumbo were dashed as the second wave of infections hit the UK with lockdown 2.0 as a result. With only sporadic passenger flights since their grounding in March, it will now be a while yet until the BA A380s return to regular service. British Airways has begun moving parts of its Airbus uh, A380 fleet for long-term storage in Madrid, as we mentioned earlier. According to the World of Aviation, they will not fly again until at least early to mid-2021. Uh, meanwhile, a spokesman for the airline told the media outlet there are no plans for the aircraft's early retirement. Uh, well, two have already made their way over there, and most of uh, BA's A30, uh, so A380s, have spent the last months parked at Chartreux in uh, France whilst rotating back to the UK for maintenance. Uh, Golf X-ray Lima Echo Fox flew from Chartreux Centre uh, to London Heathrow on November the 5th, only to continue on to Madrid yesterday, uh, November the 11th. At the time of writing, its stable make, mate uh, Echo Golf was just on its way to Heathrow to join it. It's not, it is uh, yet unconfirmed how many of the A380s BA will move the reason for moving them to Madrid also remains unclear. It could be potentially due to maintenance being made easier through the IAG partner airline Iberia or for parking costs at the different facilities. Uh, but reports are also coming in that as many as 60 to 70 of BA's aircraft could be heading for storage across Spain uh, in Madrid and on the island of Mallorca. Uh, and the um, uh, carrier could be letting go of several of its A320s. So we'll have to wait for further information regarding that. So uh, yeah, that's uh, quite a big thing, isn't it? And it's all about the, uh, the storage costs as well. Can you imagine how much it costs to store uh, an A380, especially long-term storage as well? Well, they take up a lot of room, don't they, at the end of yes. the day? Because <laughs> an awful they're, lot of ongoing maintenance they're a big old beast is, is required during that time as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very much yeah. agreed. Didn't uh, BA spend a load of money a, a little while back, Nev, upgrading the suites on the 380s? Uh, yes, they did the uh, the club suites. Yes, mm. they did. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, but yeah, we'll have to see. But I mean, I think we are going to return to some sort of normality. Um, but it will take some time to get back to the level that we left it at in 2019. Though I've got to say, that's mm. for sure. So, sticking with the 380, Armando, you've got some more uh, news. Yeah, speaking of A380s going into storage, uh, Portuguese wet lease airline Highfly will retire their only A380 by the year's end. 
uh, as this carrier grapples with COVID-19 associated travel impacts. This ex-Singapore Airlines aircraft has been uh, has only been in HiFly's fleet for three years. It's also unique as it is the only A380 to have been used in a secondhand capacity. Uh, HiFly is planning the phase out of their A380 at the end of its current lease term, most likely after this year. The decision not to renew this contract is a direct result of the pandemic. Uh, the A380s will be replaced by additional Airbus A330s. Uh, in July, HiFly opted to temporarily convert the A380 to a freighter by removing the economy seats. The world's largest A380 operator, Emirates, uh, has also started using their A380s for freight operations. The first dedicated A380, they call it a mini freighter. It's not nothing <laughs> mini about it. But A380 mini freighter successfully transported medical supplies between Seoul and Amsterdam via Dubai uh, just recently. The air cargo carrier has optimized the cargo capacity of the Airbus A380 to safely transport around 50 tons of cargo per flight in the belly of the aircraft. Uh, cargo operations on the A380 were introduced in a response to the surge in demand for air cargo capacity required for the urgent transportation of critical goods, including medical supplies for combating COVID-19 in regions experiencing a second wave of the epidemic. Oh, I'm oh, the, the pandemic. pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they are working on further optimizing the capacity of its Airbus A380 aircraft through measures such as seat loading of cargo and has planned more dedicated cargo flights on aircraft for the month of November. This week also saw Emirates release their half-year final uh, financial results, which included in the report were some figures that may indicate why the A380s may have a future as mini freighters <laughs> going forward. The volume of cargo, according to them, the volume of cargo transported has decreased by 35% to 800,000 tons. However, yield has more than doubled to an increase of 106%. This reflects the extraordinary market situation for air freight during the COVID-19 crisis. Fuel costs were 83% lower compared to the same period last year, due, to in, uh, due in part to a decrease in oil prices, which are down 49% year on year. So there you go. Could this be a uh, sustainable use for secondhand A380s? We'll see. I mean, I, I, I mean, we've got a soft spot for this aircraft, obviously, because I mean, you, I mean, you and um, uh, was it Nev and um, Carlos? Al. They got uh, and Al. That's Al, right. You all get a, you, you got a t guided tour of this very aircraft, didn't you? Yeah, at, we at did. Farnborough. At Farnborough, yeah, it was superb and uh, hard to believe that um, we're not going to see it again. Uh, that's a that's a big shame, isn't it? But it um, is. I suppose I mean because it's obviously used as a charter aircraft and also as a standby aircraft if any other a380s go tech because there aren't that uh, there aren't that many flying at the moment yeah. uh, must be difficult to uh, justify uh, the, the running cost of that well and and again i guess uh, the, the the thing that we we the issue we've got here is of course uh, there are the airlines themselves currently have spare a380s lying around don't they so i suppose if one goes tech they, they're not going to hire in are they to to, to cover it when they've got one sitting probably at an airport not a million miles away from where it's gone wrong. Um, yeah, indeed. Apparently there's something in the chat room, I'm being told. Yeah, uh, for for one, uh, Richard had a great idea, which is fly all the A380s to Tegel and use them as student accommodations for the new university. <laughs> that's yeah. that's well, not <laughs> such a daft idea. <laughs> yeah. 
was it was um, Jan is also saying that uh, guess that there's still the operational limitation that only some airports can handle the A380 and and perhaps that's been the problem with the A380 all all, all the way along in the fact that it, you know it is such a big aircraft isn't it there's not many not many airports are actually geared up to mm. take it so you know that's true from a passenger standpoint so you had a lot of taxiway limitations taxiway uh, weight ratings but if you're using it purely in a cargo capacity you're not having to navigate some of the same uh, now obviously it's an a380 so there mm. there are limited airports but i think if you're not using them for passenger operations i think your aperture probably opens up a little bit as to you know, taxiing over to the cargo operations area mm, or true. just a big old ramp that you can unload and un upload cargo. You don't have to worry about other airplanes and uh, jet bridges and things like that. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, tech, good point. Uh, Jan, Jan mentions in the, in the chat room, taxiway turn angles, right? I mean, it's a humongous airplane. And, and Captain Nick has talked to us about how challenging it is just to taxi the A340. Um, you know, around the ground, it's harder than flying it. But uh, I'm sure these guys would would definitely have a similar challenge. That, that that biggest problem as well, which most I mean most of the, uh, the the listeners will know, is the fact that the 380 was never designed to carry a huge amount of cargo in its belly hold. Yeah, it's not a lot of room in there for much no. cargo, and also that upper deck floor was never designed to carry uh, a lot of weight, as in as in you know cargo on that top floor. So. No. No. Although, Sorry. you know, on the plus side, is it, you know, Andrew van der Sarg is suggesting that, you know, there's plenty of space to store the A380s at Twente Airport, of course. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's the, plenty of room there. <laughs> the idea of seat loading an entire A380s worth of cargo in small boxes, like, just makes me shudder. That that's got to be so cumbersome to, <laughs> you know, if you if you think of a, a two Amazon boxes on each seat on an A380, ugh. <laughs> I know, but that's a lot of seats. <laughs> it is a lot of seats, but I guess somebody's got to get paid to load and unload, huh? Well, that's true. Well, indeed, yes, and um, that um, that email was uh, sent in to us by Alan White. So thank you, thank you, Alan. Alan. Yeah, absolutely. As I say, if you if you got a, if you spot a story and you want to share it with us, it's podcast at plaintalkinguk dot com. It's podcast at plaintalkinguk dot com. Now, Nev, you've got a story that actually came to us today actually Jonathan Warner sent me this one as well and uh, Nev this is a regarding a a, a certain large aircraft yes it is and uh, the headline on AV Herald says Antonov AN124 suffers uncontained engine failure and landing gear snaps well, that's suboptimal certainly <laughs> Um, Not anyway, ideal. <laughs> yes. Indeed. Well, this Antonov uh, registration, uh, Romeo Alpha 82042, performing freight flight VI 4066 from uh, Novosibirsk in Russia to Vienna in Austria with 14 people and 84 tons of cargo on board, departed Novosibirsk uh, runway 25 at about 12.08 local time and was in the initial climb through about 1,800 feet MSL when the transponder signal as well as radio communication was lost. The, re the, the uh, crew returned the aircraft for a landing on runway 25 but overran the end of the runway on landing by about 200 metres. Uh, there were no injuries, fortunately. Uh, the aircraft did sustain substantial damage to wings and landing gear. So engine number two is missing its engine inlet 
following an uncontained failure. The inboard left-wing slats, as well as the left-hand fuselage, were penetrated by debris at multiple locations near the wing route. In a videotaped interview, the captain of the flight reported that the number two engine blew up at about a thousand feet and uh, just after gear retraction with flaps still extending for takeoff sorry extended for takeoff debris damaged the aircraft's cabling and took out all electrical supply resulting in the loss of all electrical systems including instruments brakes and thrust reversers uh, the aircraft remained controllable despite all electricity gone and all communication, even uh, uh, having lost their intercom as well. The uh, crew attempted to establish visual contact with the tower, however, without success, and proceeded to land on runway 25 with very little margin due to low altitude and engine thrust. After a smooth touchdown, the overrun was unavoidable due to the loss of brakes, spoilers, and thrust reversers. It just shows you, doesn't it, um, With if you have an uncontainable engine failure like this the amount of damage that it can do across you know multiple redundant systems as well uh, that's that's pretty shocking isn't it um, I have to so, say that that first video Nev did you watch that the first video that Matt played there mm, I did yes is, yeah. it, is it me or does it look like when the uh, just before the aircraft stopped that it looked like the pilots ejected from the uh, from the flight <laughs> yes, day? I, if you watch the video honestly it does look like two yeah. Two people ejected from the flight deck on there, but there you go. Um, well, you'll see another example here because it's it's covering the same sort of. Oh, it doesn't go that far apparently. I'm being told. Okay. But this uh, this particular aircraft uh, first flew in 1991. This uh, actually mm. this instant aircraft, and uh, yeah, it is. Oh, the videos are actually yeah yeah. I I, I just what do you think, Armando? <laughs> Uh, well, I think they actually did probably a really good job getting the airplane under control and back down on a runway. Um, those, just like some people in the chat room have oh, mentioned, Russian air, Russian airplanes tend to be pretty, pretty beefy. They're they're very uh, robust, right, and robustly built. Mm. Uh, this one definitely looks like it's going to be a write-off. At least it does to me. It looks like there's pretty significant damage on there. But you know, you know those guys as well. I don't know. I, I guess I would defer to the chat room to so people that write or that fly big airplanes but uh if you're sitting three stories up on an an124 and you're seeing the end of that runway come at you and you're like yeah no we're not gonna <laughs> stop in time uh yeah. you know i wonder what goes through your mind at that point you're you know do you think you're safe do you think yeah. oh you know we're three stories up we're just gonna dig into the snow uh but uh, you know all joking aside it, it looks like they actually did a, a pretty pretty darn good job of, of getting the airplane on the ground it's, it's the de debris that you see when it comes down if you just watch the video closely you can see near where the engines are, you see bits flying all over oh, the yeah, places yeah. it's just yeah i'm sure so they went off the runway so i'm sure they took out runway oh, lights gosh, they probably right, took yeah. out some signs they probably took out some uh landing instrumentation if there's if there's any there you know there's that, There's that all kinds that of ejection. That wasn't ejection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, your friend jo uh, John has a, a comment in the chat room there, Armando. If you'd like to share that with everyone. Yeah, I couldn't <laughs> agree more. That is uh, the massive paperwork light just illuminated, probably about <laughs> 300 feet before the end of the runway. <laughs> wow. John Jonathan Warner says uh, that must have been one big old bird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's a bit more than a bird strike. <laughs> yeah, they did, I mean, in the pictures, the whole like the whole front half from the pylon forward, it was uh, it's gone. Well, it landed in a factory, so half the half the engine sitting in a in a, on a roof somewhere. So, indeed, yeah. Apparently, the engines were supposed to have been inspected six months ago. 
Um, yeah, this is the this is the picture that uh, Armando was referring to here. Look, where bits of the, hey guys, you know what this engine. brings back memories of? QF thirty two. Uh, yeah, no idea. The A three eighty Qantas Airlines Airbus A three eighty QF thirty two back in two thousand and ten. Um, that was uh, London to see uh, London Sydney via Singapore. Oh, uh, Jonathan says um, it was a bird strike. Ah. Does he, or is he winding Perhaps us up? <laughs> Perhaps he's winding us up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, apparently Tony S says in the chat room, uh, engines three and four ingested birds as well. They were very lucky. Oh, Actually, one of the reports did say that the um, three and four were smoking rather heavily after the aircraft had taken off. So that possibly could have been what it was. But yeah. like, like, like Mr. Warner said, that must have been one heck of a big bird. Yeah, indeed. I mean, well, again, at this stage, far too early to be able to make any sort of, you know, we we perhaps can it was a frozen turkey. Perhaps it was right, ready for Christmas. You know what? We, Christmas yeah. Thanksgiving is coming up. So. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right, right there. Oh yeah, Thanksgiving. I keep forgetting about Thanksgiving. Oh, if you're going to test the engine, that's the best way. What with a turkey? Yeah. Have you lost you your know. mind? <laughs> no, they do. They launch frozen yeah. chickens and turkeys yeah. into into windshields. Oh, you see, I, they I actually, actually think thought... they launch them into. No, I think they launch them into engines too. <laughs> I, 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 well, and there was me thinking that Carlos was being daft, and, no. and you're now telling. Oh, no. me, so hang on a minute, you're, you're trying. You go, go on YouTube. You're telling me that they throw frozen turkeys into mm. engines. Yeah. No, they fire them out of an they air farm. Yeah. <laughs> into the. Into are you, the are you two on glue? What, what's what's going? My produ producer John is busy telling me apparently this is correct. I <laughs> yeah. thought you two had both lost it. Okay, lovely. All right. Well, well, we'll you know, and, and there's a comment in the chat room about smoke from a Russian plane. Never. But I, in Iraq, I, when I was there, we could always tell when the IL-76s were coming in with some cargo um, because we, we would contract out to this uh, Ukrainian company. But if there was a four-mile trail of black smoke, you knew that it was the IL-76 coming in. <laughs> My goodness me. So uh, here we are, look, there's the proof. Seven, seven, there is the proof, look. ER I've just been sent... Uh, I don't know how long this is. About three hours long. Uh, is it, oh, it's four minutes. Okay. All right, we'll go. Okay, so I've been told to go to one minute 50. Hang on, let me, let me do that. Because I, 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 I'm not saying I don't believe you, but I don't believe you, uh, is, is what I'm getting at. Essentially, this is ridiculous. It's a great, it's a great video. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I know every day's a school day, but like this is like wow. Here we go. This is a, this is a five pound bird that they're throwing in. What? Oh my Here we go. goodness! So there's the there's the bird hitting the uh, the blades. I don't believe it. I literally don't believe it. That's that's the and most ridiculous thing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, now you know that, that yeah. now you know what the air, air, aircraft manufacturers do, do to make yeah. sure that everything is is really good. I mean, part of me thinks it's a jolly, a terrible waste of good turkey. I've got to be honest. <laughs> but anyway, that's just that's just me. Oh, video still playing. Yeah. There. No. No. It's all right. I have stopped it at this end. Sorry. Okay. Here we go. Anyway, moving on. Moving on to the next story. <laughs> this one. This one is not about frozen chickens or turkeys. Good. This is uh, on the. .gov.uk the um this is actually sent to us this story yeah and uh yes this is from the gov the actual government.gov <laughs> yeah. sent yeah. us this story so i'm a thank bit you, scared gov. i say i'm a bit scared gentlemen because they know we exist is that a good thing we were sent a press release 
that by by the government that was actually addressed to us. That's a bit scary. Scary. Yeah. <laughs> and it's relevant. That's scary. The what most worrying thing is is somebody's actually been listening. <laughs> Wow. So those of you will uh, will will have heard of drones uh, delivering Amazon parcels from kind of forty feet and smashing your contents over the floor, but <laughs> this story is uh, all about drones to fight fires and deliver all important COVID nineteen supplies, and they're going to be the first to receive a share of over thirty three million pounds in government funding. So Business Minister Nadim Zahawi has on Monday announced the first round of government funding for innovative projects under the Future Flight Challenge, or FFC, initiative. The 20 winning ideas will receive a share of £7 million of funding, with ideas covering a wide range of new technologies. Nine projects are focused on developing technology to aid the response to the coronavirus pandemic. Take a drink, guys. This includes the development of unmanned drones to deliver medication, reducing human contact and consequently the transmission of the virus. Advances in alternative green energy sources to power the aircraft include hydrogen and electricity and are also key features of some of the winning proposals. So the projects include... Uh, so these are so the first one is Doctor Doc. This is based in Cardiff, which is developing a pilot project to deliver goods between Bristol and Cardiff using a hydrogen-powered electric aircraft. Next one has got an interesting name. This just brings sort of Christmas dinners. This is called Napkin, uh, based in Greater London, uh, which focuses on paving the way for low and zero carbon short haul flights for passengers around the UK. The next one is Apian Limited or APIAN Limited, based in Essex, is creating and building a drone to deliver medical supplies like COVID 19 blood and swab tests between the NHS hospitals and labs in response to the pandemic, protecting obviously key. NHS workers and staff and the wider public from coronavirus transmission. Next one is the Light Aircraft Company Limited, based in Norfolk. Hey! Uh, will integrate electric propulsion into existing aircraft to enable an electric flight of small aircraft. The next one is Wind Racers Distributed Avionics. So based in Southampton and Bristol, they will develop a swarming technology an approach to coordinate the multi-robots to allow multiple drones to fly in close formations and work together to provide humanitarian aid or fight fires. That's a good one. I like that one. Uh, next one is Drone Prep Limited, uh, Consortic Limited and Wind Racers Limited, uh, based in Cornwall, lovely part of the UK, and the Isles of Scilly uh, will use unmanned aerial vehicles to deliver critical PPE and COVID-19 testing kits to vulnerable and rural communities in Cornwall and the Isle of Scilly. Uh, the funding today, uh, this week as well, performs part of a wider £33.5 million investment through the Future Flight Challenge. Uh, over the next few years, the FFC will distribute $125 million from the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund, or ISCF, and the FFC aims to accelerate the UK's position as a world leader in revolutionising how people and goods and services fly. 
Uh, it focuses on the development and demonstration of a novel integrated aviation system and enables the safe operation of new classes of air vehicles. These include air taxis, drones, regional aircraft using electric or autonomous technologies. There's something about that coming up later on in the show. Uh, Business and Industry Minister Nadim Zawi said, as the UK leads the way in aviation revolution, well, these bold proposals showcase the pioneering spirit of the UK's aerospace and aviation industries in solving global issues. Uh, today's funding will help us build back a better and cement our well-earned reputation for research and development excellence while creating hundreds, and this is the important bit, of new jobs. This is, uh, this is good. This is good. Uh, obviously, you know, we all know that drones can do a multitude of different things, but I think um, using drones for some of these reasons, especially obviously for distributing um, these kits and obviously the samples and uh, the t- the tests and stuff, results and stuff from people in rural areas who possibly can't get to um, a hospital is a very good idea. So mm. let's hope it works. Well, I, I mean, I love the whole idea of the grant sort of thing. You know, it's nice because I, I, mm. I mean, I remember when they announced that these these grants were going to be, you know, that this funding was going to be available for these innovative projects. And so it's nice to hear that, you know, you know, it's nice to hear that that money's being doled out, if you like. And and you know, great project involving drones and stuff. It's it's. I must admit, round here, I'm amazed that Amazon aren't doing it yet. Perhaps it's just the distance involved. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, yeah. there's several projects out there. This is these are just some of the projects that that the money is being sp- spent on, and there's more to be released uh, very, very soon. So we'll, we'll actually, it's worth saying, Matt. That. If any of our listeners at all who listen to the show have had a drone delivery from Amazon, let us know how that ha- how that uh, works. We'd like to hear. I mean, I've seen it on Family Guy. Does that count? I mean, oh, well. <laughs> Yeah. No, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Lois was in a in a, a mattress store, wasn't it? And she bought it on Amazon, <laughs> and they had to race it home or something silly. But uh, anyway, there we are. I digress. I'd, I'd love to see them try and deliver my Amazon deliveries. Cat food, right? Cat okay, food. yeah, they'll be quite heavy. Your ones, won't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah indeed. Anyway, moving. so. Moving on to the next part of the show, very, very interesting and exciting part of the show. And for this, we are going to hand it over to the awesome Nev. Yes, well, I'm absolutely delighted to have been involved with this uh, interview that Carlos and I did uh, last week. Uh, We went up to uh, Duxford Airfield and uh, we had a fantastic time with a company called Faradair and they are developing a hybrid electric aircraft concept that solves three core problems which currently hinders regional flight growth noise operating costs and emissions with a clean sheet design aircraft specifically configured for hybrid electric flight the Bihar aims to achieve significant reductions in these areas whilst delivering an economically viable regional air transport solution a multi-role asset, Bihar converts from an 18-passenger configuration to cargo in just 15 minutes. Accommodating three LD3 cargo containers and payloads of up to five tonnes, Bihar is an environmental neutral re- uh, workhorse, uh, maximising the revenue opportunity 24-7. Hybrid electric flight provides a cost-effective distributed aviation model, enabling local airfields the ability to offer scheduled and charter flight services to regional towns and cities at a price point unmatched through traditional major airport hubs. While well, Carlos and I went to their HQ at Duxford to speak with CEO Neil Cloughley about this exciting project, and here is part one of the interview. 
So you join me here at the Duxford Imperial War Museum in Cambridge, uh, the new home of Faraday. And I'm here with Neil Cloughley. Neil, welcome onto the show. Pleasure to be here. And thanks for inviting us down to, uh, to come see you today. Oh, welcome. I mean, it's, uh, it's a joy to be here. It's a fabulous place for us to relocate to. There's an awful lot of history here. Um, we're very, very excited about the future of what we plan to do here with the Bihar aircraft. So, Neil, we're sitting here in this hangar here, surrounded by all these iconic aircraft. For you as a, as a new or as a company coming to somewhere like this, this must be like the best location you could have ever dreamt of, of being. Uh, the discussion was very short when we got made the offer. Uh, it was yes. Uh, uh, it's a no-brainer. Um, I've come here many times as a child. I've been to air displays here. I've flown a Tiger Moth from here. It's, it's a fabulous place. It's, it's got real atmosphere. It's got a huge amount of history, obviously. A uh, key part of the Battle of Britain with the, the big wing. And the opportunity to actually bring a business here so that we start merging from the history and the heritage of the past to actually now moving forward to the future and actually manufacturing, yeah, I mean, it's, it's massively exciting. And for the benefit of the listeners, just explain to us, when we've just had the privilege of being in your office, you have uh, quite, quite the view, I think, in your, from your office. I have a very distracting view. <laughs> um, it's, it's been really difficult. We moved here on 1st of September, and I am a die-hard aviation nut. I mean, I, if you, my ears go up with the sound of a Merlin or something like that, and, of course, it's fairly frequent here. We have the Aircraft Restoration Company doing fabulous things, and so every now and then you get that magnificent roar goes roaring off down the runway, and it's like, oh, what's that? Inconvenient when you're on a conference call with suppliers and customers and people that you're partnering with. It's like you get very easily distracted. But yeah, it's, it's a magical place. We have, uh, we have our first office, basically, where we're starting off and just bringing, expanding our team. Then we've got new offices currently being renovated across the road. And then, of course, we've got our prototyping hangar, which hopefully will be up and ready in about the next two years. So this is the, the acorn moment, if you like. This is the starting point, although we've been going sort of six years now. So, Neil, tell us a bit about uh, yourself. Where where from the beginning uh, with you did the aviation passion because I know your father was very much into aviation and obviously that's that's obviously gone to you in the you know growing up with your father and stuff yeah I mean it's I've always had an interest in aircraft since a young sir I always wanted to be the fighter pilot um, that's where the, the target went um, but my father when he was uh, in the security environment went into the unmanned air vehicle business which in the mid-80s was very embryonic. It was the real early pioneering days of, of UAVs, unmanned air vehicles. And so when you spend every holiday, weekend down at the factory, you're getting to know the guys, you're sitting around aircraft engineers and you're seeing these military-sized UAVs come together, it really does sort of start sowing the seed of what you want to do and where you want to be. Um, but also when it's your dad, when it's his company, and you see what it takes to actually start a company, to hire people, build that team atmosphere. Um, yeah, there's an awful lot of that that set me on the path, I think. Went on a slight detour after that, so went into IT for, for many years, was my first sort of working career, and then uh, pivoted and switched into aviation via a role with a company called Cabot Aviation. So Cabot were one of the largest remarketing firms of commercial aircraft assets. And I was very fortunate in 2003 um, to basically be selected by them to go and work with them in remarketing commercial aircraft. So, yeah, it was, uh, that was the path in. But I'd always had that hankering. I had this, this nagging thing that I had to do, which was to carry on the work that my father started years ago. And he was way ahead of the time. I mean, he was 30 years ahead of the curve. 
and just a little bit too early but a lot of that technology a lot of the design work a lot of the principles would make perfect sense for the technologies available today in hybrid electric flight etc so i thought let's give it a go let's let's create a british aircraft manufacturer again and, and give it best you made your father a promise many years ago what was that promise um, well, basically, I mean, unfortunately, because he was too early, uh, he had pretty much the world's first combat UAV sitting on the ramp ready to go. Uh, Gulf War One intervened as a time, and it was just uh, the company wasn't available to have the funds it needed to survive. Um, and a group of Americans came, bought the assets of the company, won multi-million dollar contract uh, in the U.S. Four years later, a thing called the Predator came along. Two billion dollars later, we're now buying uh, those assets from the Americans. And it's a shame because we had it here. But I remember on the Sunday, um, with administrators, you hand over the keys, facility and everything else. Factory was at Andover. And I remember saying that we, we have to go back and say goodbye. You have to go say goodbye to all the kit and the facility. And, and he didn't want to, but he did it. And we did. And he's grateful now that we did do that at the time. And I was 16 odd years old. And you see your father put so much into it. I mean, blood, sweat and tears, everything. And it, it's really tough when you see that collapse. And the only reason it collapsed was through lack of funds. And so I made him this promise. I said that we'll, we'll take what he did and we'll take all of that engineering, that technology and the ideas and we'll do something with it in the future and we'll make sure it is a success. 25 odd years later, I'm now doing my level best to maintain that promise. So how was Faraday born? Where did that start from? Well, really, I mean, uh, having worked in the commercial aircraft business and, and worked with so many of the regional carriers, we've seen various shifts in aerospace happen. So, for example, we saw the LCCs come in and disrupt the legacy model. The regional market is still one that I think has got some, some morphing to do, shall we say. Um, there is a difficulty operating a 50-seat regional jet out of somewhere like Heathrow and having 18 passengers on board. That is a business model you simply cannot sustain. It won't work. Whereas we have a whole wealth of airfields in the UK and in countries throughout the world. I think it's something like 5,000 airfields in the US that don't have any form of um, scheduled services or regular services. Well, why not? The Wright brothers flew in the early 1900s and we are still reliant to get certain journeys in either car, coach or train. We should be doing it by air. The reason we're not is because of three core problems cost of operations uh, noise and emissions so basically if we can cure the cost of operations problem and then we can tackle the noise issue then basically the emissions with the new technologies hybrid electric flight we can solve the emissions problem as well the time was right to come up with then an aircraft design that would specifically go after those three problems and that would dictate the design of the aircraft itself. So I thought, let's go for it. Let's, let's set up Faraday. Uh, Michael Faraday, obviously, is the inspiration of the name. And so we formed in 2014, and the same week that Zunum did in the US, which had a huge amount of publicity for electric aircraft. And, and we've had to do it the old-fashioned way. Uh, graft it, blood, sweat and tears, sweat equity, lots of sleepless nights, and um, no holidays. So the Beha, fantastic design. We've seen the models, we've seen the pictures online, and we've seen the pictures and the photos. Looks an amazing aircraft. Um, where, where, where did that kind of idea come from? Well, obviously, back in the day when my father was working on the UAVs, we were working with joined wing technology. 
So the idea of the join wing tech at the time was to create an asset that could be used with a heavy payload capability, but also able to fly at a very slow flight when needed. So for example, approaching the back of a cruiser or a battleship or a destroyer and land on the deck. At the time they were catching UAVs via nets, which obviously didn't work. So we looked at this design and I thought, well, if we evolve this, what we're trying to do is create an extremely high lift capable aircraft that can go from point A to point B, doesn't have to be pressurized, doesn't have to go high, doesn't have to go super fast, super far. What we want is basically a utility aircraft. The Cessna Caravan's been doing it for years and doing it very successfully. What we need to do is to take that concept and create something that can be used across a whole range of different capabilities. So the joined wing technology uh, was a natural opportunity. We then came up with the idea of adding the third plane. So uh, the, many of the skeptics originally went, oh, too draggy, we got rid of three wings back in World War I, why on earth would you use it, blah, 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 blah. And I had one particular engineer say, oh, I can do everything that you're talking about with a long single wing and uh, you don't need the three wings. And I said, ah, but can you then fit that aircraft within a 19-meter slot? Well, no, why would you need to do that? I said, because that is the size of the door of the aircraft carrier. And our aircraft sits perfectly on the lift ramp of the new aircraft carrier. And if you're operating on an environment in special missions for governments, etc., where you're landing on a road, you don't want wings that are clipping trees. You have to keep a fairly compact footprint, in which case the box wing and the triple box wing does an awful lot of what we want it to do um, combined with a ducted fan propulsion system which basically gives us great thrust efficiency up to about 220 knots anything beyond that the duct would act like a parachute and so really it started shaping itself as to the criteria of what we needed this aircraft to do started shaping the actual aircraft itself and that's how the Bihar was born. And the Bihar is not just uh, a passenger carrying uh, aircraft, it is a lot more uh, utilitarian, utilitarian uh, aircraft carry cargo. But do you see um, it doing more things in the future with more different versions coming online? Different. Um, it, it's a tricky one because. You've got um, the LD3s you can fit on board. For, for sure. I yeah. mean, if you look at any. Um, if we look at our aerospace history, there are some magical aircraft which are no longer with us. If you look at aircraft like the F117, the SR-71, Concorde, Beechcraft Starship, some beautiful aeroplanes, no longer flying, mainly because they weren't doing what they said they could do. So, for example, when an F-117 stealth fighter is no longer stealth and it can be tracked on a radar, it's now just a very, very expensive fighter aircraft, hence why it died. But if we can basically pull together something that is able to cross a whole range of sectors, so aerospace history is littered with one-trick ponies, so there have been so many companies that come that want to build the new Cessna 172 or whatever, and there's only one company, roaring Merlin about to come whipping over us, I think, uh, there's only one company that has actually done that. That's not a Merlin, that's a lot pointier <laughs> and faster. Um, but basically, if you look at what Cirrus has done, Cirrus are one of the few companies that have been able to actually take it to Cessna and Textron and, and take them on at their own game. But there are so many carcasses of aircraft that wanted to be that but never made it. So it was very apparent to us that what we would have to do is to bring together an asset that would straddle various different markets. So every market is cyclical, which means that not only moving people, but moving logistics, boxes, uh, even firefighting as we've mentioned, and special missions. And special missions, things like logistics. 
we don't have enough helicopter assets to do some of the roles we have to do around the world right now. They're very expensive and they're very good at what they do. But lugging boxes between one airfield and another doesn't have to be done by those. And so we have an asset here that can basically be used across a, a range of different opportunities, but the core asset remains the same. So how we dress it, how we fill it, how we use it is the bit that can change, but the actual core asset itself remains the same. Now, the propulsion of, of the Beehair itself is a completely different kind of clean sheet design. Um, obviously, one of the things that we have the issues with in the UK, in many regional airports, is noise pollution. People don't like noise. I don't know why. I personally love the noise of aircraft. But with this aircraft, you are going to change that whole way of thinking, I think, aren't you? With the, um... uh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's, it's, I find myself at a real cross-juncture here. It's a real problem because... I love noise as well on certain things. That Merlin Spitfire engine, um, you'll find that there are certain howls. The Vulcan sitting behind us, uh, the howl that had, it's just, there are certain mechanical sounds which are magical. However, if that sound is coming at you day in, day out, and it's constantly over your head, I can understand why people would be upset with that and they wouldn't want to do it. So therefore, we have to do something about that. If we're going to be expanding our regional air transport, we've got to reduce the impact on other people. So noise is critical. So how do we do that? Well, number one, there is frankly absolutely no reason. If you get, I find it quite amusing. If you go to Heathrow, you find that you get to a low emission zone on the roadway going into Heathrow. Kind of ironic considering how much emissions is pumped out by that <laughs> airfield. You're thinking, my car really isn't going to make much difference to this. And you can smell it three, four miles away. All the kerosene of all these aircraft taxiing around and everything else. I believe that one of the biggest first changes we can make in the commercial aerospace market is making sure that all ground maneuvers, power, etc. is basically done under electric propulsion. Electric propulsion has matured now to such a point it's been proven with the likes of Tesla, it's been proven now with the likes of Magnix flying in the Cessna caravan such like, that the electric motor technology is ready. So what we can now start doing is using that electric motor technology and start putting it into things like landing gear, as the likes of Wheel Tug have been doing since sort of 0506. And let's take as much out of the air as possible now, and then as technology improves and we can start developing fuel cells, battery technology, etc., to take on the entire net zero proposition aircraft, let's start making those incremental steps. So for us, uh, it was a logical position to go hybrid, where the Toyota Prius was first laughed at when it came into the market. Everybody said it's a nonsense vehicle, blah, blah, blah. What was interesting about it is the fact that it could take certain bits out of the equation. So if we're looking to eradicate noise problems, if we're looking to reduce emissions, and if we're looking to reduce our cost of operations, well, of course, that big push off down the runway, that big fuel burn, that big thrust, that is where basically you are going to be burning all that fuel, making all that noise, kicking out the emissions. If we could do that bit by electric motor, and then once you're climbing out and away, you switch into the recharging via the turbine, etc. Then you've got a model where that recharges. You don't require infrastructure on the ground, but we're making a very sizable dent into the cost of operations, the noise footprint, and the emissions. So our target, and it's pretty ambitious, but we're trying to say that our aircraft will have a noise footprint of about 60 decibels at field perimeter. Now, the fact she jumps off the deck quite quickly means she should be climbing off and away and gone, but having that target means that at night time, you're going to be able to operate in airfields that have got noise abatement orders mm. where you'll be able to come and go 
where people simply will not know that you've so come London and gone. City. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. London yeah. City is perfect. I mean, 10.30 at night, uh, half a day on Saturday, and I think six flights on Sunday, all because of noise. The facility's there. It's prime real estate. Now, what we're seeing also is with the growth of online shopping, with the growth of demand for just in time and, and I want my product tomorrow, then if we could take more vehicles off the road, the trucks, by actually flying stuff regionally. So it comes in on a 767 into East Midlands. It's then palletized into the containers. You've got fleets of like our aircraft sitting on the ramp that are quiet, can operate at night, load it all up, fly it directly into the cities, into the small airfields right next to those cities, and then just distribute it with electric vehicles, etc. locally. Again, you're starting to put that dent into the whole emissions process, but you're also speeding up and making the process more efficient because you're actually getting stuff out there quicker directly to where it needs to go. If you want to take your knowledge to the next level, sign up for a subscription at the A320 Lounge. Our online video courses combine whiteboard-style lessons with full failure demonstrations shot in 4K in state-of-the-art simulators using a professional production team. Go into your next simulator session with confidence, having seen failures run in real time and with the background knowledge to answer any questions from your instructor. To get more information and to sign up, visit a320lounge.com. Oh, that's, that's such a fascinating conversation there. What an interesting man. Yes, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Thanks very much to Neil for doing that. Uh, we've got part two coming up next week. Mm -hmm. And uh, as people were saying in the chat room, it's unusual to get so much enthusiasm and knowledge from a CEO. And Neil absolutely yeah. oozes that, doesn't he? Yeah. So, this is uh, clearly a man who is obsessed with aviation himself, isn't it? This, that's, that's the exciting thing about this, this particular And, and it is worth noting as well that we did point out on the interview that um, we weren't joking. Neil's office does overlook the runway and his view and the sounds that we heard while we were chatting to Neil in his office before we'd done the interview, honestly, Merlin's going past oh, every dear. five Oh, how minutes. awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the, best, the best office in the, in the country, without, without question. Wow, okay. Yeah. The day that we went there, the weather was absolutely perfect as well, wasn't it? So yeah. it was uh, lovely. Absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, thanks very much, Neil, for doing that. And more next week. Yeah, so we are going to move on with the next part of the show, and we're going to hand things over to uh, the awesome Armando to introduce this next part of the show. Yeah, guys, if uh, are you ready to do the best part of the show? <laughs> Matt's going to hit that button, and we're just going to get all that other stuff out of the way and go talk some great things. <laughs> hit the button, Matt. We love it really, Armando, honestly. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm sure you do. Uh, F-35 is rejected from Eurasian Times. Germany, okay, is a whopping 5.4 billion euro contract to buy 38 Eurofighter typhoons. See, that was the, that was the, uh, the anticipation, right? What, the, what are they going to buy? Yeah, the German parliament, the Bundestag, has reportedly approved the uh, acquisition of more Typhoon fighter jets to arm the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force. The contract has been awarded to Airbus for the purchase of 38 Eurofighter, Eurofighter Typhoon jets 
with the cost estimates indicating a figure of around 5.4 billion euros. The variants ordered are the tranche 3, which would replace the in-service tranche 1 variants of the Typhoon. Uh, the order is particularly beneficial for Airbus, affected by the coronavirus pandemic. Oh, hang on, uh, hang on, babe. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, hang on. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers. Yeah, absolutely. The yeah, decision of the German parliament to buy 38 Eurofighters known as the Quadriga project is very strong message, not only for the German Air Force, but also for Europe, in particular for European defense manufacturers. More than 100,000 jobs are based on programs like this, said the chief executive officer of Airbus Defense and Space, in a video. Today's commitment from at Team Luftwaffe to, that's their, probably their Twitter handle, uh, <laughs> to purchase of up to 38 Eurofighter aircraft reinforces Typhoon's role at the heart of European defense for decades to come. Uh, our team in the UK stands ready to work alongside our partners across Europe to deliver our commitments. Uh, yeah, no kidding, said a tweet, a tweet from uh, BAE Systems. Um, the new Typhoons are a significant upgrade over the basic early uh, Tranche 1 models, having conformal fuel tanks, fiber optic cabling, and computer upgrades, uh, ESA radar, defensive system upgrades. Uh, they, all these things are crucial for any modern 4.5 generation fighter. The German Air Force currently operates 141 Typhoons, a number reduced when two of its aircraft were lost in a mid-air collision. These are in service since August of 2003. According to Airtime Hub, the 38 fighters are the first installment of Germany's long-term acquisition plan of 93 Typhoons from Airbus. 30 Boeing FA-18 Super Hornets and 15 of the variant for electronic warfare, the EA-18 Growler. One of the many reasons for Germany to choose the Eurofighter Typhoon over the F-35 was the wish to retain intellectual property of the aircraft, electronic systems, and weapons within the country. The Eurofighter National Test and Evaluation Center will enable it to do just that. It would also help maintain its relationship with France, which is always at a competition with the United States over arms sales. Dassault and Airbus are also collaborating on a project to make a new generation fighter aircraft to replace the Typhoons and Rafales in service with respective nations. So basically, thanks to the German Air Force, uh, Airbus gets a big old deal, uh, Boeing gets a big old deal with the F-A-18, and the only people that lose out is Lockheed Martin. So. <laughs> I didn't realize I didn't realize Armando until I looked into this. But do you do you know Armando when the the, um, the Eurofight was first introduced into service? What year? Uh, I'm going to go with 1988. Actually, it was 2003 they were introduced into service and first flew in 1994. Oh, see, yeah, I was kind of yeah. too far off. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I remember as a kid, I remember, maybe not as a kid, but uh, yeah, 1994, I mean, I was 14 years old. So I, I remember the typhoon, having like a model of a typhoon. It was somewhere around that time. Uh, so uh, apparently Jonathan Warner's got a question for you, but I'm struggling to find it in the chat room that it's been brought. Oh, I see. So it is the one I thought it was. My apologies. Uh, so anyway, saying that the uh, the reason it's a mixed fleet is that they need the American Super Hornets for their nuclear role as they use a U.S. weapon. Does that sound? Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm sure not many people are making nuclear bombs out there. Mm. Probably only a couple of countries. Uh, yeah, no, um, fair point. Yeah. I think the uh, the Typhoon and the F-18 are probably pretty pretty good 
uh, fighters that are complementary of each other's capabilities. The F-18, we've talked about so many times. The Typhoon, we've talked about so many times. are incredibly capable in multi-roles. Um, so I think it, uh, and especially when you're minimizing the number of airframes in your fleet, like the Luftwaffe is doing, then uh, it makes maintenance easy, makes training easy. Uh, to have just different variants of one aircraft is, makes life easy. So, um, yeah, there you go. I like it. Actually, Jan Huber just points out quickly before we move on, Luftwaffe does not have uh, nuclear bombs. So thank you, Jan. Mm -hmm. So, Nev, moving on to the next one, Nev, and uh, Air Force One news. Yes, uh, our producer, John, uh, just said to me in my ear that uh, I've got a really interesting military story for you. Well, that's never happened yet. <laughs> However, on this occasion... It's extremely interesting, and I'm delighted to read it out. Oh, dear. It's on the simpleflying.com website, and it says, Air Force One set to get first ever non-American pilot from the RAF. We love you, Armando. A British Royal Air Force pilot could become the first non-American to fly Air Force One. <clears throat> Excuse me. As we know, Air Force One is the call sign for United States Air Force aircraft carrying the president when we hear air force one we automatically think of the blue and white specially modified boeing 747s and whilst the 747 is the aircraft that most american presidents fly air force one can be any plane in which the president is a passenger the plans to allow a non-american to be in charge of one of the country's most symbolic icons is the result of a 40-year-long 40 40 year exchange program between the RAF and the United States Air Force. In a move designed to maximise relations between the British and American militaries, the Royal Air Force pilots can be found flying everything from U-2 spy planes to stealth B-2 nuclear bombers. According to the British newspaper, the Daily Express, an RAF wing commander has been earmarked to join the elite group of avi aviators who fly the United States president. The equivalent rank of an RAF wing commander would be a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force. In total, American uh, presidents and senior cabinet officials have a fleet of 15 aircraft at their disposal, which includes two VC-25s, which is the military variant of the Boeing 747, eight VC-32As, uh, uh, which is a modified Boeing 757-200, two C-40 Clippers, a modified version of the 737-700, and several Golf stream G550s. Uh, the two military versions of the 747s take turns as the presidential aircraft and feature a state-of-the-art uh, communication system and the ability to refuel whilst in mid-air. Uh, so, yes, that's pretty, uh, pretty major, isn't it? Uh, well, it's, uh, the fleets of the presidential aircraft is operated by the 89th Airlift wing based at uh, joint based Andrews Air Force Base in uh, Camp Springs, Maryland. Uh, of the 1,000 military personnel who make up the 89th, there are 80 specially chosen pilots and 89 flight attendants. To be selected to fly Air Force One, pilots must have a minimum of 2,500 hours on flying time and be experienced fighter jet um, flying fighter jets or other military aircraft types. According to the Daily Express, sources have told them that so far, unnamed British officer would being, begin his tour of duty, co-piloting co other aircraft in the presidential fleet. Once they are satisfied with his performance, he will then be placed on the list of pilots How able to fly the commander-in-chief <laughs> Air Force One. Always has a complement of three pilots on board 
and every flight capable of fl uh, sorry of flying the plane should the flight crew become incapacitated. The senior source informed the paper over the weekend about the move saying this plan has been in the pipeline for a long time now and it appears that the green light has been given on both sides of the pond. The wing commander chosen for this job has previously served a number of years uh, in the US uh, as a staff officer and is well acquainted with how the US Air Force operates. The exchange program has grown considerably in both scope and depth since 1971 and this is really a symbolic culmination of four decades old and deep-rooted exchange program between the US Air Force and the RAF founded on trust. It'll mark a historic moment for the RAF which celebrated its centenary two years ago. So how about that? Armando, do you think, I was going to say, do you think it is an epic fail that they haven't designed the, the new, um, the Dash 8s they're using for the new VC-25s to, to be able to refuel? I can't begin to comprehend at what point in the acquisitions process somebody said that Air Force One did not read to refuel in the air, but... Hey, there's some smart people out there that I'm sure are making those decisions, and there's a good. I mean, I know, I know the Dash Eight has got better fuel economy than than the Dash Four Hundred or the Dash Two Hundreds, which is what the 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 Twenty Fives are based on now. But even yeah. even so, I think the the, the decision not to have um, refueling capabilities is a bit of a. Now, operationally, um, as far as I know, the. That it, that that airplane has never stayed up in the air that long. The at least the the VC Twenty Five. Um, even in, so a public example was after 9-11 actually happened, uh, President Bush flew to Barksdale Air Force Base in Air Force One in the VC-25 where he uh, switched over to an E-4B, um, which is the 747 National Airborne Operations Center. Um, basically, they can run the country and run a war from that airplane. Um, and uh, And then that aircraft took him up for however many hours until they ended up in Omaha, Nebraska, um, so he could get a briefing at the U.S. Strategic Command. So even with a 747, 200 or an 800, it seems like what they would do is just keep them in the air, right? And we know the 747, 800 can probably stay in the air for you know good 17 hours. I don't, I don't know about the the weight for the uh, for the Air Force One version, but. Um, it seems like operationally they would they would transfer him to a different airplane or just land somewhere and refuel. But I, I don't know. I mean, every other airplane in the air in the Air Force has the capability to refuel, except for a handful. So, very interesting that this one wouldn't. I'm sure, as you say, I'm sure there's a big plan behind it, isn't it? Somebody somewhere has made a strategic decision uh, that it's Lane, Lane's just picked up on something oh. you said, Armando. Oh, okay. Oh. What's that? Oh, the 800. Yeah, it's a dash eight. Yeah, just like the seven thirty seven max is the seven thirty seven eighty two hundred. <laughs> yeah, well, there is that. Uh, <laughs> there is indeed that. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know enough to question either of you, frankly. So, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, ha yeah. However, I will say uh, about having the the UK the the British pilot, the RAF pilot. I think that's awesome. I mean, there's no reason not to the. You, you guys know me. I've, I'm such a, a fan of the U.S.-U.K. relationship, and I think it's such an important uh, partnership in the world that there is absolutely no reason why, why we wouldn't be able to do this. And I have worked with quite a few RAF pilots 
in the U.S. Uh, Air Force flying our C-130s and our special operations aircraft. Um, so to have one flying Air Force One is a great idea. And I think it just goes to that, you know, that, that special relationship. Now we just got to get some of our pilots over there on that, on uh, Boris Force One. <laughs> Boris Force One, there we are. Boris Absolutely, Force One. Indeed. Okay, we're being Love told it. to move on. <laughs> so the next story is uh, coming to us from warbirdsnews.com. And uh, this one is it's going to the UK for this one. And the Flying Legends finds new home at Sywell Aerodrome. So that's about two, about two hours away from us, Matt. That is middle of the country. Um, the fighter collection. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a nice part of the country. The fighter collection is proud to announce that the world famous Flying Legends Air Show will return in 2021. Woohoo! Jonathan Warner saying, at its new home of Sywell Aerodrome in the heart of Northamptonshire. Uh, the venue was announced on November the 6th, 2020. Following the mutual decision with the Imperial War Museum to end its event's 25-year run at Duxford, the fighter collection has been engaged in discussions with several prospective sites eager to host Europe's finest annual warbird event. Thousands of vintage aviation enthusiasts travel from around the globe every July to savour the spectacle of historical aircraft displaying in their natural element. There has been an active airfield at Sywell for more than 90 years. And this week, it's home to a variety of operators, including the Blades, who we've seen at many air shows, actually, uh, the aerobatic display team, Sloan Helicopters, uh, aviation service company 2XL, and the Ultimate Warbirds Flights, which offer passengers experiences in two-seater fighters, including Spitfires. Sywell returned to civilian ownership, having been used for military training before the Second World War, uh, as well as a repair station for Wellington bombers during the hostilities. It has since grown into one of the UK's best-loved aerodromes and is renowned for its Art Deco Hotel, the Aviator, and its on-site museum. Jane Larcombe, the fighter collection, said, Sywell retains the ambience and we have always sought to capture with the Flying Legends brand. It is a historic aerodrome with a resident collection of warbirds and is very well versed in delivering high quality events. Uh, Michael Blesto Brown and his team, along with Richard Grace at Air Leasing, have gone out of their way to accommodate us, uh, she says. And we can't wait to extend a warm welcome to our many thousands of loyal followers, as well as some of the first-time visitors, to what we are certain will be another memorable flying legends in 2021. Sywell is centrally located in the UK and has excellent transport links, and being far away from many large airports means the airspace above is completely unrestricted, making it ideal for the kind of dynamic displays for which flying legends is renowned. The first Flying Legends to take place at Sywell is due to be staged on July the 10th, 11th uh, of 2021. Tickets will go on sale um, once the future path of the current coronavirus pandemic becomes clear. Follow the Flying Legends Facebook page uh, and their website for future updates. So guys, this could be a potential ne uh, new air show for us to go to. Um, I'm still curious year. as to to how come the deal with Duxford, you know, I I, I feel there's more of a story mm. there than than we're aware of because it is a very popular part of all of their 
their days, if you see what I mean, their their aviation days. Perhaps Duxford would disagree. If but, I had to um, guess, Matt, yeah. I would say it's the um, the moolah money. Right. Mm. Yeah. Well, yes. I, I guess, uh, and it's you know unprecedented times, I suppose. But I mean, which I'm, is, I'm which delighted they found a home. But it, it surprises me because you know we all know guys. We've been to the air shows and that, and even the one that me and Matt went to earlier this year. Um, we all know how much uh, kind of ticket sales or, or patrons mm. that um, you know go through the door as such to these air shows and yeah. spend money not just on the air show tickets but also oh, on, all the food in the, the shops and the <clears throat> souvenirs and and I must bit- admit because oh, I mean obviously when we went to the the, the, the driving air show that, that mm. Shuttleworth did mm. now uh, and I'm sure Nev you'll agree with me one of the highlights for for that is wandering around the various food vendors and having something to munch <laughs> and and of course we we, lit, we I mean myself there were food vendors there and to be fair everything looks delicious and it was all super clean but because I suppose of what was going on myself and Carlos had basically brought a packed lunch with us because you know we sort of we got wanted a fridge to... well lunch. yeah exactly but, we, but but it was that that thing in these current times you felt more yeah. like you what you wanted to remain in your little bubble um you know sort of um so I, I guess that you know it's it's certainly very uncertain times in general for aviation and air shows and and that kind of thing. I mean, I, th- I think with Cywell, no, Matt, it's it's centrally placed within the UK. Yeah, it is literally yeah. central in the UK, mm. so it is quite accessible for for everyone, you know, yeah, for everyone absolutely. to get to, yeah. to get to within the UK. Lovely. So. Well, when they announce the first show, we'll have to we'll have to arrange a little uh, a joining of bubbles and uh, go go and have a go and have a look. Mm. Definitely. Indeed. So we are going to move on to the uh, next part of the show, and uh, which we're going to hand things over to Matt to introduce, because it's the, it's the next thrilling instalment. <laughs> this is it. This is, this is the bit where Carlos actually usually asks me during the week, can I have a sneaky peek of it, because my dad <laughs> wants to watch it. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it, is, it gives me great pleasure mm. to bring the next part of The Plain Truth with the legend that is Captain Al. And this week we are talking about pilots and crew hours. Hello and welcome to Another Plane Truce and this week we're going to be talking about pilot and crew hours. Joining me as always is your friend, my friend, it is the legend that is Captain Al. Hi Captain Al. Hello there, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you, I'm very good. Now, this is such a big subject, so I appreciate we're only going to be skimming the top of this, but obviously, as many of the listeners will know, I am a coach driver when I'm not doing this, and obviously, the same for me, as well as HGV drivers, is that we're governed by very strict rules and regulations about how long we're allowed to drive for, how long our duty is allowed to be, etc. And it suddenly occurred to me, I presume, obviously, that pilots uh, have... Uh, similar restrictions in place very much so very heavy heavily regulated and very complex in nature so (laughs) as a as a coach driver i'm going to guess that you could basically from the top of your head reel off the basic rule structure as to how many hours that you can work in a given day oh yeah absolutely i mean you yeah there are certain changes depending on you know factors and things but very minor age but essentially yes it is more or less exactly the so same could we day. could we write out the basics of your uh, driving time limitations on one sheet of a4 in fact actually i have a crib sheet that's on a double-sided sheet of a5 so, so okay yeah, so, yeah. right 
So for pilots and cabin crew, it goes into approximately 25 pages of A4. <gasps> 25 pages? Yep, it's a whole chapter of Ops Manual A. It's uh, chapter 7 for anybody who wants to look it up. And there is a lot in there. So one of the areas that most people look at is how many hours can a, a pilot be flying the aeroplane? Now, this is complicated because it all depends on whether you are acclimatized to the time zone that you are in, yes or no. What time of day you're starting, because that has a factor on alertness. How many sectors you're doing, because the more sectors that you do in a day, the more tiring it is. So one very small part of this huge chapter is a table. There are two tables, one for acclimatized, one for non-acclimatized. Uh, and by acclimatized means that you have been in the time zone that you're operating for a sufficient period of time to become acclimatized. You're not subject to the rigors of jet lag, if you like. Right. So you'll go into the table with the uh, start of your duty time. And there are about 13 or 14 time zones, if you like. I'm not talking about time zones like here in LA. I'm talking about the starting time zone. So there's a little block from sort of six in the morning till lunchtime, and then the day is split up progressively. Uh, so you'll go in at that point and the number of sectors that you're going to do, and you'll come up with a time. And it could be anything between sort of broadly speaking, uh, nine and a bit hours up to 13 hours. So that bit is relatively straightforward, but there are lots of other aspects that you can throw into the equation. At the planning stage, uh, you can be planned to do an extra hour over that table if you've been given a bit of extra rest beforehand and you'll have a little bit of extra rest after. And then there's also something called commander's discretion, which is the ability for the commander to decide to extend those limits by a time period as he or she feels fit to do so. So that, that basically covers the, the simple bits of it. Sat over the top of that for the time being are the European Union working time directives, which kind of suggests that the longest that anybody should be working in a working day is 16 hours. So typically 16 hours would be the longest day that you would be on duty as a pilot, although that wouldn't be 16 hours of actually flying the aeroplane. And then if we really want to throw into the equation for our long haul operations, then of course there is time where you'd be away from the controls, asleep in a bunk or in a seat in the cabin, and that extends the amount of duty that you can do. So it is a complex subject that I cannot particularly summarize in detail <laughs> without getting into the real nitty gritty. So that, that all applies for pilots. What about cabin crew? Well, yeah, they're humans too. Oh, um, oh the rumors are true then. <laughs> they are true. And we'll put it reasonably simple in the majority of cases they can work an hour extra over the pilots right so okay. do, do you know the reason behind that um it's more to do really with the fact that typically the requirement for absolute concentration at the latter stages of the flight is a little less that's not to say that the cabin crew aren't alert and poised and ready to to kick into action if necessary but that's obviously in the minority of cases, whereas for us, we need to be on top of the arousal curve 
at the last part of the duty to land the aeroplane. Right, okay. Uh, right. Also, from an administrational point of view, you can see the difficulties. If the cabin crew went out of hours before the pilots, what are you going to do? Right. Yes, there is that, yeah. Now, I mean, obviously, uh, on, on some of the long, longer sectors, I, I know that pilots can have a rest period during the flight uh now are, are they allowed to have that in the cockpit or do they need to go to a specific rest area in order to like not be there essentially if you're having your rest period in the the cockpit there is that argument are you officially off duty wouldn't you love a simple answer to that i question? would yes but i'm not going to yes. get one am i <laughs> no because your simple question produces about four or five avenues that we can discuss okay so Let's look at a uh, simple longish flight, a sort of flight from the UK down to Turkey, so four hours or so, five hours. You're going to do there and back in a day. There are going to be periods of time in the cruise phase where the workload isn't particularly high, and therefore it is perfectly acceptable for one crew member at a time. I'm talking about the pilots here, because typically this will be two pilots. Yeah. For one pilot at a time to take what is called controlled rest in simple terms a cat nap so a quick sort of power nap of no more than 30 minutes the the scientists have studied this at great lengths and the rejuvenating effects of a cat nap are well documented so rather than try to sort of uh, eke it out a, a little bit so you know those of us who've done long car journeys and we're just like oh, i'll be okay i'll be okay Actually, the better thing to do is pull into the services, have a 20-minute nap, yeah. and you'll be much safer than, you know, winding down the window, you know, putting the radio <laughs> on, taking the 17th coffee, yeah. that sort which of thing. In, which, in my experience, has never worked. It's, yeah. you, it's already too late once you've reached that yeah. point, in my experience. <laughs> yeah. So, so a quick power nap, um, and there are very set procedures with regards to how that's administered so that you don't both end up sleeping at the same time etc right. so that's that's uh, controlled rest and that doesn't affect how many hours that you can do then for longer haul operations they might put a third pilot on the flight deck uh, it's just basically an extra set of eyes they're not going to operate the controls particularly um, and you can get a small extension to the uh, maximum permitted flight time by just having an extra pair of eyes on the flight deck. Then you get into a different avenue, which is where that third pilot will actually uh, do a stint of flying the aeroplane. So one of the pilots is actually then officially resting. So they are not operating the aircraft. They're still on duty but they have gone to either a quiet seat in the cabin that is dedicated for the crew member only. It's not a case of, case of just trying to find an empty seat, you know, sitting down next to Bob and Vera and uh, <laughs> having a nap. Um, it will be a sectioned off uh, seat. Or in uh, aircraft designed for, for long-haul operations, there will be crew bunks. Yes. So uh, actually sort of you know, proper sort of beds, if you like. Yeah. You go and tuck yourself away there. And that will extend your 
uh, number of hours that you can operate because you're actually properly resting. You're away from the flight deck. And presumably this is the same for cabin crew as well, because I know on a long haul flight they're expected to take a, a break. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, so, and, and again, I, I mean, I, I've seen pictures of, of a, a crew rest area. I mean, it all looks very, all looks very first classy. If I'm honest with you, they've all got their own yeah, little yeah, TVs absolutely. and their nice little bunks, and it's somewhere yes. where you can draw the curtain and literally stretch out and and sort of shut your eyes for a little while. I don't know how well one would sleep, perhaps. Um, yeah, I think it's probably fair to say for the cabin crew, it's a little bit more communal, whereas for the yes. pilots. It's a, a little bit more intimate. Okay. But uh, yeah, that's absolutely uh, correct. And again, it may well be for the cabin crew that they will take their rest in allocated seats in the cabin if there aren't uh, bunks on that particular aircraft. Okay. Yeah. And then you mentioned the the ultra long haul flights. You know, you sort of uh, UK down to Australia nonstop that are happening a little bit more these days, especially with uh, lighter passenger loads. Yeah. They will have for the pilots two entirely separate crews. Uh, okay. because there comes a point where the aeroplane can fly longer than the people can operate it. So right. you'll know, just have a crew that does the takeoff and a crew that does the landing, and they kind of just swap over halfway through. So, yeah, it can turn into a little bit of a game of musical chairs Lovely. as you rotate around. <laughs> uh, and I've certainly done that in the past at Monarch when we used to do long overnight flights down to the Maldives. We'd have three pilots, and quite often it would be that sort of musical chairs scenario because in a single crew operation uh, the captain has to be at the controls for takeoff and landing so therefore by inference they are going to choose when they feel the most appropriate time is for their rest because right. all of you need to be rested there is an argument to say that the, the third person doesn't necessarily have to rest because they would just go off duty before the flight ends but right. sensibly if all three of you take a rest period then you've got three sets of eyes on the flight deck at the end, which always makes sense for an extra yeah, pair of eyes absolutely. worth a million dollars. Typically, the, it, it's, it's a bit like when it comes to choosing the crew meals. Uh, the captain will have first choice. Some captains I used to fly with used to like to take their rest straight away. Mm. Others would like to take it you know, further down the flight. Uh, and again, lots comes down to that. It's not just how you feel as an individual captain. It's also, you'll look at it and go, okay, well, there are certain complex bits of airspace that it's probably best if I'm around for, right. because if it goes wrong, we might get shot down. Right. So, <laughs> oh, good. Uh, <laughs> so, so, you know, and, and that's how you would kind of play it. And we used to do it so all three of us would get, get some rest. You just go in one of the lie flat seats and, and have a, a little bit of a nap. Uh, funnily enough, on the flight deck, I can think on... Less than one hand's worth the number of times I've actually slept on the flight deck. Wow. Okay. Uh, but put me in a, in a seat in a cabin and I can go to sleep pretty quickly. It, no so. time at all. So, I mean, um, I mean, I mean here, here in the, the UK, uh, we adhere, from a driving perspective, we adhere to the EU rules and regulations when it comes to taco hours and things like that. Uh, now, I know that the rules are different in other parts of the world. Um, but, I mean, I, I guess I'm assuming that the rules are the same for pilots across the board. No, you're absolutely right. The rules are different in various parts of the world. So all of Europe plays with the same rule book at the moment. And that includes the UK, even. even that includes the yeah, UK. Yeah. And that aspect's not going to change no. quickly with Brexit. So there's, there's a, a set framework. We used to have our own flight time limitations in the UK up until, goodness, uh, maybe about 18 years ago, right. uh, which was actually a bit more restrictive than what we have these days. 
the airlines didn't particularly like that because they felt that they weren't playing on a level playing field against some other countries in Europe. So there were some countries in Europe that had a kind of flag of convenience for flight time limitations. So from a commercial perspective, uh, if the flight time limitations were less constraining, then it's cheaper to operate. But you're always playing that balance between safety and, and cost. Uh, and of course, the biggest cost is an accident. Uh, <laughs> when, we, when we went to harmonize European flight time limitations, um, they became less rigorous. And there was a fair amount of uproar in the UK because we'd spent as pilots a long time working to try to get these things tweaked because we were aware that you can only push the boundaries so far. I'm not saying that the current regulations are unsafe. I'm simply saying that they were better when we had our own in the UK from right. a pilot perspective. Okay. But within other parts of the world, so for example, in the UAE, they have their own way of doing things, their own rules. Australia has its own rules. America has its own rules. Canada has its own rules. And when I've spent a little bit of time looking at all of these frameworks, and they're all complicated, by the way. And <laughs> when I say complicated, um, with regards to the flight time limitations, there are the rules and there's interpretation of the rules because they're not necessarily categoric. There's more than one way of reading things and the, the rule makers don't necessarily give practical examples to indicate how they interpret it. So, you know, different airlines within Europe have their own little way of, of operating. And then sitting on the top of that will be any sort of industrial agreements, so sort of scheduling agreements, if you like, that are locally uh, negotiated between the company and its representatives or union. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's complex. I mean, uh, I've been flying now for uh, over 20 years, and uh, I certainly don't know them as well as you would you do know your driving well, ones. Well, no, no, indeed, actually. And, and the final question uh, on on that, if I, I may, Al, is I know certainly as far as my rest is concerned as a professional driver, the amount of time that we're allowed to drive over various weekly periods, etc., is all based on how much rest we've had. So the key actually is to have had the appropriate amount of rest. And so you can borrow a little bit of rest from like next week, but it has to be given back to you for an example. I mean, is it a similar system uh, with pilots or, or, or is there a limit, for example, to the amount of hours that you can fly in a year, as an example? There are yearly limits. Oh, there no. are rolling 365 day limits. There are 28 day limits. There is a raft of limits for the number of hours that you have flown, uh, duty, and it is, again, immensely complicated. And it can only really be tracked with, a, you know... An app. A, an app <laughs> yeah. or a fairly complicated Excel spreadsheet. And the crewing departments within airlines will also uh, track this data as well because uh, there is an onus on them to ensure that they don't operate you when you're illegal to operate. And if you do breach the flight time limitations, you are conducting a criminal act. Right. So in the same way as you would be if you breached your, my, your driving my, my limitation. Right. And is that the responsibility of the pilot or of the, uh, uh, of the, the operator to make sure that you don't break those rules? Or is the, it a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B? <laughs> the, the ultimate uh, responsibility is on the individual. Right. So the individual is responsible for ensuring that they do not operate when they shouldn't. Okay. The operator has a 
duty of care is probably the best way of putting it, where they should ensure that they don't require you to operate, but ultimately it's your responsibility. Well, as always, Al, it's a fascinating subject, and I know we've only just scratched the surface, but uh, for now, Captain Al, thank you. It's a pleasure. And there we go. Another Enjoy job that. well done. Thank you, Matt, and Captain Al. Indeed, absolutely. Yes, yeah, great. Uh, great job. As I say, it's such a complex subject as well, isn't it? Which I, I knew it was going to be. The minute I opened my mouth and sort of asked the questions that I did, I, I knew there was not going to be a simple answer. But, uh, yeah, very involved. Very the involved chat room did. definitely enjoyed that, Matt. Did, did they? Good news, absolutely. In fact, actually, Richard is saying that uh, those uh, rules are so complex, um, I... Um, uh, almost aimed at causing breaches, really, he's, he's sort of suggesting here, a hmm. um, bit like some of the really ancient UK laws that have never been repealed, making almost everybody technically a criminal if enforced, which is, you know, mm -hmm. you know, the future. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have complicated rules here because you have Part 91 flying, Part 135 flying, which is on-demand or scheduled charter, amongst other things, or Part 121 flying, which falls under Part 117, crew rest rules but one airplane and one air crew could fly all three of them part 91 135 and 121 in the same day i mean um <laughs> right nice uh, actually matt matt is a very nice information <laughs> very nice comment matt in the chat room from nick uh, nick codling uh, please don't ever stop doing these. Is that what you're yep, referring to? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Right, okay, all right. Well, in fact, actually, genuinely, boys and girls, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, he says, trying to be suddenly realising what he said out loud and trying to be less condescending, uh, there is, uh, we are uh, hopefully going to be organising uh, some more recordings in the next week or so, and genuinely, guys, we would love any of your questions please that you would like me to put to Captain Al so uh, this is your opportunity because um, we're busy sort of trying to work out what subjects we're going to talk about in our next recording session which will hopefully happen in the next week or so so uh, please uh, podcast at plaintalkinguk.com that's podcast at plaintalkinguk.com uh, if you've got any questions that you would like the answers to to do with aviation and I'm sure Captain Hal will Captain Hal Captain Hal will have the answers <laughs> this is Friday night yeah, it's Friday. Sorry, I've had two beers like in between now. So that was clearly a, my teeth are no longer my own. Uh, but uh, yes, it's a podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Please do get your uh, your uh, questions in uh, so that I've got lots of juicy content to get out of Captain Al for the next show. Anyway, I've talked on far too long. So, Carlos, it's time to wrap up, please. <laughs> yes, it's time to uh, start to wrap up the show then. So don't forget those social media links, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, search social media for Plain Talking UK. Okay, I'm sure you all have already. That all-important WhatsApp number, if you want to get your picture on the green screen behind Matt or me here in the studio, you can send that to plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. Send your pictures there. Or you can email them to us, podcast at plaintalkinguk.com and those all-important questions for Captain Al for the Plain Truths. And don't forget our website, all allthews.plaintalkinguk.com. Click on our website. You can find all the links on our website to our Patreon page if you want to become a patron of the show and uh, help us promote and push things through to you every week on the show. And also you can find the store on there where you can grab yourself a shiny new PTUK uh, glorious cotton, 100% cotton, beautiful T-shirt with the embroidered logo on. And you can also get yourself a PTUK 
coffee and tea mug from the store on there as well. Uh, and you can also uh, go on to our Amazon link and click on and do your shopping through Amazon, which I have done twice this week, and uh, buy your things through Amazon. doesn't cost you a penny, but it gives us a nice little referral fee um, once a year for uh, your purchases. And also, don't forget as well to uh, click on the website and just check us out, really, because there's lots of information about uh, the crew on there. So social media reminders as well to everyone as well to look at uh, Airshow World because uh, we're going to say a big thanks to Stu over at Airshow World for giving us a shout out on his show tonight. Uh, really appreciate uh, to uh, him and for anyone who's interested, check out his channel on YouTube, Airshow World. And and I know, I know thanks bit... to anyone who's joined us from yeah, his link absolutely. as well. So yeah, uh, the the uh, just just uh, very quickly answering Matt's question as well. He's he's asking are the uh, the Plain Truths episode available as a podcast in themselves? They are available on Spotify. They're now available on iTunes as well. Uh, search for the Plain Truth and you will find them on wherever it is that you go now for uh, listening to your, your favourite podcatcher, as we say when we do the tweet. Uh, but, uh, yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll carry on, Carlos. <laughs> so quick round, Robin, then. Matt, what are you doing next week? Uh, it's lockdown, so not a lot. Next. <laughs> Nev, what are you doing <laughs> next week? Uh, similar, but I do have a part two of that uh, Ooh, excellent interview yes. to edit. Yes, please. Uh, that'll be good. And there's also a video of me doing an engine failure on takeoff. <gasps> Uh, on in an A320 Exciting. simulator uh, at Cambridge, so that's going to be a bit of a laugh um, with uh, coaching from the guys from the A320 Ooh, podcast. I can't so wait for this. If we can put that together uh, as well, absolutely. So, Armando, what are you doing next week? Not a whole lot, just chucking people out of airplanes on Sunday, and the rest of the week I'll just be waiting with bated breath just uh, for Nev's two videos. <laughs> Yes, that that is the highlight because quite often we release some stuff early early on in the in the week that we all get to watch outside. So uh, anyway, yes. <laughs> so John, what are you doing next? Oh no, we can't hear. Can we? <laughs> no, there we go. Yeah. So that is uh, where we are going to bring episode three hundred and forty-four to an end. A massive, massive thanks to everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room this evening. Thanks to all you guys for tuning in and listening to us this evening, and not forgetting as well everyone who downloads the show as an audio podcast. Big thanks to you guys and girls as well for downloading us each week. And don't forget, if you do download through iTunes or some of the other podcasts you download, these kind of platforms, if you can give us a little rating or a review, we would really, really appreciate that indeed. So that's it for episode 344. Don't forget to join us again next week for the show. And uh, so from me, Carlos, here in my home studio, from Matt over in the glorious P2K Master Suite Studios, from Nev in the fantastic NevTech Studios, and from Armando in his glorious studio. Have a great weekend. Take care and see you next week. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. See you.